1: Hi there. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host for today, Carla Nappi. I just had a great time talking with Janet Karani about her recent book Philosophy of Science after Feminism and that came out with Oxford University Press in 2010. Now even though this book is ostensibly focused on the philosophy of science as a discipline and sort of looks at reasons why philosophy of science as a discipline may not have been historically as socially engaged as it could be and, and provides ideas toward a program and concrete ideas and concrete suggestions toward a program to help philosophy of science become more socially engaged um, and gives reasons why that's a good idea. Um, it's, it's got much wider ramifications than just on the field of professional philosophy of science. Um, so it's, it's quite useful and it's quite interesting in that respect. Now, the reason why it's um, so pertinent for uh, an audience of STS scholars more broadly is that um, Karani does a wonderful job in this book of integrating not just uh, philosophy of science literature, but also anthropology of science, ethnography, sociology, history of science, and so on and so forth into a really synthetic story that I think speaks to issues that are of wide import and very wide relevance. We had a great time talking, um, and I hope you enjoy Good afternoon, Janet. Hi, Carla. We're here today at New Books in Science, Technology, and Society to talk with Janet Karani about her recent book, *Philosophy of Science After Feminism*. Now, that was this was absolutely fascinating for me, and in the tradition um, of the best books uh, that we talk about for New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, there are a lot of very wide-ranging ramifications um, that stem from this book that not only are about philosophy of science, that but that potentially are uh, it can be extended much more broadly. And so, I think it's a very important book for. Or science studies in general, and thanks so much, Janet, for taking the time to talk with us about it. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. <laughs> so, can you get us started um, by just saying a little bit about what brought you into this field? Um, I know this is a very broad question, and we always <laughs> start with this um, some somewhat unreasonably broad, perhaps, question. But why philosophy of science? What draws you to this particular area of philosophy?
0: Um, well, I had started in engineering school at Columbia University. And um, uh, as a requirement of the engineering curriculum, we had some general education courses. We had CDC, that's Contemporary Civilization. We had Humanities. We had um, uh, some very few slots open for electives. I took Intellectual History and so forth. And I was fascinated with the issues that were raised. And more fascinated by those issues than by, um, and the, the very beginning of the engineering curriculum. This was a four year program and it was pretty new in those days at Columbia that instead of doing three years of pure sciences and humanities and two years of engineering, um, and the applied sciences, uh, it was all going to be contracted into four years. So. I was taking pure sciences, then that is to say, not engineering courses. Um, and I was taking these humanities and finding that I liked these uh, humanities courses far more than the science courses because they raised such fundamental issues and um, they privileged everyone equally. You didn't feel like, well, you were a student, you had to take the notes. And it was all in the textbook or the lecture the professor was giving you the formulas and all that stuff um these are, this was a whole different format. it was discussion classes uh you felt that your they made you feel that your view was just as important as the professor's, et etc. It was wonderful, and I loved it. I hadn't taken any philosophy courses. I really didn't know what philosophy was, but uh, there were little snippets of philosophy here and there in these other courses, these other humanities courses, you know, and um, uh, intellectual history courses, et cetera, I was taking. And so I spoke to different professors and, uh, and they encouraged me to pursue philosophy. I switched into philosophy. I had to change colleges within Columbia University. It could have been a disaster, but it was fabulous. I loved all the courses. And, um, that got me into philosophy. And yet by the time I graduated and started, you know, graduate studies, I had moved back to toward the sciences again through philosophy of science because I was enthralled with some of the issues that philosophy of science was raising about the science I had studied. And I found that, I mean, everything was fascinating to me, even the most pedestrian parts of uh, logical empiricism that was in full bloom at that time. You know, what is the next scientific explanation and uh, explain the process of scientific confirmation, you know, from a logical point of view. All this was wonderfully interesting and very illuminating to me, even though later we all in philosophy of science decided this was very a very narrow perspective and it left out so much and it wasn't very helpful finally at all. But even the, the logical empiricism, some of the the um, most basic uh, approaches presented by logical empiricism and the most basic products of those approaches, I found Wonderfully interesting. So it all worked out for me, although I hadn't really been exposed to philosophy and certainly not philosophy of science until I was absolutely immersed in it. And I mean, the first term as a philosophy major uh, with no background, I waived the introductions and I took uh, three, four advanced courses in philosophy. Uh, undergraduate, next term, I took a, an advanced graduate course, um, encouraged by one of my professors in the first term. And so I was absolutely thrown right in the middle, had to make up time, um, but loved it. So everything was great. <laughs> but I can't tell you any rosy story about, ah, yes, when I was three, I was thinking <laughs> of these philosophical issues and I was, a, I was fated to be a philosopher. Not at all. I didn't know what philosophy was. <laughs>
1: Thank you. <laughs> now, this, as we um, move from that background into the particular book that we're talking about today, the goal of the book, and this is a quote from the book, is to provide the blueprint for a philosophy of science more socially engaged and socially responsible than the philosophy of science we have now, a philosophy of science that can help promote a science more socially engaged and socially responsible than the science that we have now. Can you talk a little bit about this goal in the context of the genesis of this project? How did this particular issue of the social engagement of philosophy of science and the power of that engagement to perhaps affect some sort of a change on science per se, um, emerge as a crucial issue in your work? Well, let's see. Um,
0: Perhaps, uh, relevant would be first, um, my discovery of feminism mm-hmm. and, um, and my, you know, getting politicized there. And, um, and that came because my husband, who's a political philosopher, and I went, I shortly after I had, he was already at Notre Dame and I came to Notre Dame. I had gotten finished my dissertation. I, um, was just starting, I had been teaching at University of Utah, but, We had gotten married, and then we had a baby, and so um, we ended up both at Notre Dame. And we thought we would do this joint course in philosophy of feminism because neither of us had any idea what feminism was all about, Mm -hmm. and um, so we want to explore it. We thought, well, okay, neither knows anything, so we'll (laughs) explore it together, (laughs) help each other, and we'll do it with the class. It'll be exciting. It'll be wonderful. Well... um, you call the course philosophy of feminism using the F word. You don't, the, the students are, are uh, just terrified and they <laughs> they will register. So we had 14 very, they were scared, but they were um, brave enough to register for this course. It didn't justify um, two instructors. So it fell to me to do the course because I thought, well, how could a man do philosophy of feminism? So let me do it. And my husband had um, ordered some books because he had, you know, started looking at this as a political philosopher. And uh, we found that one or maybe even two of them were out of print. <laughs> so uh, and we had this new baby and um, he went off to this. The only Eastern Division uh, American Philosophical Association meeting I ever missed. This was this one year. He went off to give a paper there, and I stayed home with the baby and was reading these articles. Well, you know, getting a syllabus together for this course, Mm -hmm. which originally we were going to both do and which neither of us knew anything about. Well, and I'm getting politicized, reading all these articles about what the problems for women in society were, etc. So this started my interest and my career in feminism, okay, and feminist uh, studies. But um, in those days, uh, there was just beginning to be um, feminist critiques of various academic fields. I mean, the feminism then was, hey, you know, equality isn't there for women. How can we, this is a very important issue. Um, it, we have to have equality as a goal. How can we bring about that goal? This was where feminism, you know, was at the time. Mm-hmm. And, um, but of course we were starting to understand that um wow some of the academic fields that uh were being pursued in university and even in lower grades they were not helping in fact they were they were um further fueling the problems for women in society we certainly were um maintaining them were keeping them intact in and so there was interest in looking into these fields certainly this happened Oh, the the earliest um, fields to get this careful scrutiny, more careful political scrutiny, were uh, history and and English and literature in general, but started at least from our perspective in English literature. Uh, You know, and it was it had to do with, well, gee, how come there are all these great women writers? How come, for example, in, in English? um this the syllabus doesn't include these women or I mean, you know jane jane aust is included you have one or two women at most but my there were all these women writers and they had uh sometimes very profound impacts on their societies so how come what what were the rules of ca- the canon um what were the rules of uh, that decided that that decided who were the great things, what was great literature, what should be included in a, um, a viable syllabus. So it started in, in literature, started also in history, because, well, gee, you never heard about women in history. You only heard about men and their power struggles and their battles and so forth. Um, and women's history was out of the picture. It was essentially um, communicated to women as well as men that, well, women weren't doing anything much in the history, uh, in in uh, recorded history, and certainly doubtless, not in unrecorded, you know, prehistory. And uh, so they're of no interest, and so we didn't have to talk about them. Uh, yeah, yeah, there were some queens along the way, et cetera, you know, <laughs> kings and empresses and all that. You know, a little tiny bit here and there, but aside from that, there was just no discussion. And so, and of course, that message meant, um, well, you know, women haven't done anything, and maybe they're starting to do something now, and this was the the end of the 20th century, maybe, so maybe they should be integrated into history in the future, but women were looking for role models, and were ideas for how they could, you know, here was feminism, well, what kind of new, new approaches should women pursue, what kinds of new perspectives, and new goals might women have, and you, of course, you want to look at what women have done in the past. But there was no information about that. So that's where it was. I got interested in this. I even invited speakers in my classes from other areas like literature and like history to give critiques of their fields. But I didn't think that philosophy that philosophy was um no relevant to this at all, I mean philosophy was dealing not with people and their goals and so forth. it was dealing more abstractly with the good and justice and virtue and uh, truth and knowledge and criteria for knowledge etc and so for a long time, and you know there was no, no literature critiquing philosophy, and this finally started coming but i so I started teaching a course and and i there was um a discussion group that we have, we still have History and Philosophy of Science Discussion Group at Notre Dame. And we were preparing one year, and I don't remember exactly which year this was, we were preparing for a quantum mechanics conference that we were organizing at Notre Dame, and it was a very nice conference and very good and very effective, and we were having pursuing very interesting discussions there. But we um but we uh in the discussion group, you know, we were, we were preparing for this. And, but that particular term, some of these, um, feminists, these gender related courses were extremely effective and we were, our consciousness was being raised and anger, you know, <laughs> and also exhilaration and, and, uh, that we can affect change was there in the class. The students were wonderful, especially wonderful this term. And um, the contrast between chewing on all these traditional issues in, you know, philosophy of science and this wonderfully political work, politically infused philosophy, among other things, that was going on these other classes was jarring to me. Somehow I thought, what are we, you know, we're kind of fiddling around and, you know, what are we doing in philosophy of science? Yes, yes, these are interesting issues. They're important in a way. They have abstract importance. But no concrete importance. And how can we be fiddling when Rome is burning? Because, you know, these other, these classes, I'm confronted. These young students are saying, why should we have these situations? What can we do to change? And, you know, they were involved in recognizing problems, deficiencies in society, and wanting to change them. And this was jarring. So I started teaching a course called Philosophy in a Different Voice. Deciding to explore, and I had no idea how to get it, but I thought other people knew. And so I will explore a feminist critique of philosophy, philosophy across the board, including philosophy of science. Well, I talked to people in in feminist studies. You know, I went to a, a society where I remember very much. I went to this um, Society for Women in Philosophy, which we had regular meetings, um, uh, the Society for Women in Philosophy, the, the um, uh, Midwest group. And I asked people, I remember Marilyn Fry saying, oh, that sounds, and I told her about what the course was going to be, um, looking into feminist critique now, not of literature and not of history, etc., but of philosophy. And she said, "Oh, well, this is fascinating. I said, well, what should I, uh, you know, what should I assign readings? I don't know. <laughs> we don't have very much out there. And so we had to start exploring and what was there at the time first was critiques of the history of philosophy this was like canon formation in in um uh in literature and also in history you know, why do we look to some topics and not others why do we construct periods in history in, in some ways and leaving out what was going on for women etc so um, I started with history of um, philosophy and finding out that, well, you know, which women were being left out, and how were even the men treating women, and how were, what topics were the men pursuing, which left out women's concerns, and all that. And the students were really excited with this. I mean, these were philosophy majors now saying, "Wow, you look at this! Uh, philosophy has its real problems." And then delving into. You know, very tentatively epistemology and even philosophy of science. So that started me in. But I took uh, some years before I, you know, I was trying to understand what is feminism's contribution to philosophy of science. And philosophy of science, um, the, the science, the philosophy of science I learned was very much, you know, logically oriented. It was logical empiricism. That meant we're going to understand science, as I say, scientific rationality by reconstructing it in accordance with formal logical um, language Mm -hmm. and formal logic rules and so forth. They can understand, you know, logically what's going on in science. And that was it. In empiricism, we're going to understand, yes, the the foundation in experience. So it was in traditional empiricism, sense data and whatever, and my experiences and how do they support statements, observation statements, do these support theories well, we're going to find out the support relations by logic and the, the basis in experience by traditional empiricism. Hence, it was called logical empiricism. And so this was, well, you know, this certainly didn't open up terrain for anything political, feminism. Well, at the time I was did my dissertation, I was studying this new philosophy of science. Uh, I studied Kuhn, and I studied the Feyerabend, and I studied Lakatos and so forth, Hansen, and other figures. And I was, these figures are saying, look, you can't just look at the logic. You have to look at the history of science, the way it develops. History of science has to be a basis, the primary basis of philosophy of science. History of science, which include contemporary science. So, that was happening in the field, but nothing much else. Um, over time, uh, as I spell out in my book, in the second chapter, I mean, we started understanding and Kuhn opened the door to also getting a, a, a socialized perspective of science. As so say, see, well, science is, is also created within a community. And one of Kuhn's basic notions was scientific community, looking at how the community operates and under what conditions it operates most effectively and so forth. So all that was happening, but no ethical issues were being introduced and no political issues were being introduced into philosophy of science. It took some time before I finally understood, I mean, I had the motivation to see what feminism contributes to philosophy of science. Uh, Comparably, something, I wanted an answer that was like, what feminism was contributing you know uh, analogous at least to what feminism was contributing to to um literature and history that was comparable in significance to what the ethicists were now feminist ethicists were finding what feminism is contributing to ethics or political philosophy you know this was all happening slowly mm-hmm. but but no one was saying really or very few were talking about what feminism was contributing to philosophy of science and so Finally, I got, you know, uh, in fact, Jim Cushing, who was then uh, phys- in the physics department at Notre Dame. He's passed away since. And he was very much a historian and philosopher of science as well. And he was very much involved in all our activities in philosophy of science. And he put the question very strongly to me, um, Uh, One one day, you know, well, what is feminism? And he kind of irritated by all this business effort. What does feminism contribute to philosophy of science? And he later, I even dedicated an essay to him. What does feminism contribute to philosophy of science? And he later said, no, no, he didn't ask that general question. He asked what feminism contributes to philosophy of physics. (laughs) Much more restricted, but. So I was, but this was all motivation for me, but it took a long time before I could, and I wanted to see, I f- felt that there was a story to be told here. And, um, uh, why would, why would all this, why would we not be making, or why could we not be making as effective a contribution in philosophy of science as feminists were making in history of philosophy and in ethics and so forth. So so that gives you a very long um, answer to your question. But the politics, of course, you said, well, what about social reform? What about politics, etc.? cetera? Um, yes, feminism is all about um, doing something political, uh, uh, recognizing problems in society and wanting to change to get rid of those problems to make for a much more egalitarian society. If philosophy of science was going to be affected by feminism, then that was going to have to be part of the agenda.
1: Thank you. That's great. Now, as we get into the book, that's actually really, really helpful background. Um, And it also reminds us that even though the book is about and these concerns are about feminism, they're not. That doesn't mean that they're only about women. Um, One of the things that the first chapter of the book does really, really well is it introduces, it uses the context of a primer on or a feminist primer, as you say, for philosophers of science to introduce the kinds of questions for science, the kinds of normative questions for science that feminists have been pursuing. Now, you use um, some case studies here that are very powerful and very uh, convincing. They're very moving uh, to show how uh, to really to, to kind of go into some of the pressing social issues that confront women today and look at the way that science has actually, rather than Uh, sort of alleviating those problems, it actually can make those problems worse. So some of the powerful examples that you give here in the book um, are from medical research, heart disease, um, AIDS research. And these are really uh, effective, I think, motivators for showing how um, the need for a more socially engaged response to and and relationship with science is actually very pressing. Mm -hmm. Can you talk maybe pick one of those examples that seem most powerful to you um, just for our listeners to kind of get a sense of what's at stake here um, in the in motivating this uh this set of questions at all? So I think I, I'm particularly remembering the heart disease and the AIDS um research uh examples because they are so um powerful, but um but any example really that you find particularly interesting to think. Of?
0: Well, they all, it's hard to make a choice, so let me touch maybe on a few of them, but let me backtrack just a little bit, because you said, well, uh, you start out very concretely. Yeah, if I, you know, I, okay, two reasons, at least, that I started that way. One is, this is where feminists tend to be. I mean, they are... They start with the very concrete issues, you know women's experiences and women's um, obstacles that women have faced, et cetera in society. The theorizing came later, came, or to the extent that it was simultaneous, and it was in a way simultaneous with the getting clear about women's situation, you know women's situation very much drove um, issues, and this is very big on feminism, uh, that we don't lose sight of the concrete situation because the theorizing has to finally be directed to the concrete situation, what starts the process off, what motivates the process. So that's one, you know, feminism means you're going to look very carefully at the concrete situation. So I start that way. But then also, if you discuss these issues and as you had you know, defined the goal, et cetera, if I just talk about that, uh, start that way, about uh we want a philosophy of science that uh is going to make for a better society and all that, well, that opens up all kinds of worries and and complaints, and you know no, no, we are interested in this very concrete uh, uh, set of epistemic concerns, and we have nothing to do with all of this, and what is this uh politics coming to science that would be a contaminant, et cetera, so what I wanted to do is look very carefully at what's going on in the sciences. And I took a bunch of examples and say, okay, and what's concretely going on in philosophy and how um, science is. Firstly, I start out with, you know, what are the problems for women in society? Just very, very briefly. And then how is science affecting them? Is science, we always hoped that science would be, this is the enlightenment ideal, help us to to have a much more enlightened um, uh, a, a, a society which is, um, free of the ignorance about, well, not only, you know, women, but all kinds of other things, you know, and, and misperceptions and biases of the past. This was the promise of science. So when, when feminists were talking about, well, the problems of women's society, they were looking to science for help. But when we looked at science, we found, um, that science was very frequently, too frequently, you know, um, just maintaining the status quo. In fact, you know, and sometimes fueling more problems. And you mentioned heart disease, you mentioned cancer. Well, my goodness. Uh, one thing minimally we expect from science is that, you know, I mean, medical research is that it helps all of us. But when we look at medical research up until the 90s, uh, we find, and I give statistics and so forth on funding and all that, Um we find that well, you know the agenda was men 's diseases and not only men 's disease but you know middle class white men 's diseases affluent men 's diseases um, questions of, and symptoms and drugs that could help these you know to alleviate or or rid men of these diseases so I mean in heart disease, my goodness the the uh, symptoms of heart disease the the uh, actually the the um uh, the the factors you would look at, you know, the, the, uh, the, um, experiences you might have when you are having a heart attack that you have to be, uh, you know, apprised of that, wow, if you're, if you're in you know, feeling this pain across your chest, et cetera, then this might be a heart attack. All these, these, uh, indicators of heart attacks and, um, uh, the, uh, just the way that heart disease develops, etc., and how it uh, continues and what drugs are effective and what changes in lifestyle are effective, all that just focused on men. And it turns out that, well, gee, women present different symptoms. And women, uh, they they uh, show uh, problems with heart disease later than men and in different ways from men. And then the whole disease takes on a different trajectory. Uh, AIDS research was the same kind of story. Uh, no attention was directed to women's situation with AIDS and HIV and how they presented different symptoms. And so uh, these diseases were not diagnosed in women. Women had a much worse prognosis because their problems weren't even recognized. Um, And the the, the drugs and the therapies that had been um, hooked up for the men didn't always work on the women. Sometimes they had very poor effects on women. Uh, sometimes they worsen the condition of women because the drugs had never been tested on women. The procedures, the uh, the tools that were used for various kinds of surgeries on women, well, they weren't appropriate. sometimes these um these uh, uh, implants, you know, and, and uh, devices to heart monitors, uh, uh, pacemakers, etc. Oh, well, they weren't they weren't constructed with women's different physiology and bodily proportions in mind even the surgeries the tools were too big or they weren't they weren't appropriate for women's bodies so there was this extraordinary story that was stunning to be unearthed by uh women researchers in the field women feminist researchers in the field so uh that was that was just heart disease and that was just aids but the the problems were across the board women use more Uh, pharmaceuticals than men, and yet um, women have uh, 80% of the problems with pharmaceuticals in the United States because the drugs haven't been devised for women. So this has started to change, but you know, most of these drugs, uh, we haven't gone roll back and, all right, we're going to test everything. We're going to redo everything. No, that's not in the cards, cannot be in the cards. Mm -hmm. And so most of the drugs that women take from, you know, the past, um, haven't been tested on women. So that's a horrible story. Mm-hmm. But that's, and that's so basic. But, uh, you know, I go through other examples mm-hmm. in that first chapter, like, um, like archaeology and archaeology up until the nineties, they weren't even asking about women. There, was, there was a whole story. And this is the turning points in, in the evolution of humans. I mean, wow, you know how humans developed and, they, what they, they discovered fire, and they discovered our, um, you know, our agriculture, and so forth. The whole story left the women out. It was unbelievable. Women did nothing. They were just sitting in the cave or sweeping, and the men. I mean, archaeologists told horrible story. If you think of museum exhibits, so you think of the effect it has on on the public. You saw just men, men doing stuff, women in the sidelines with babies. Mm-hmm. That's all women were doing. So archaeology is another st- sorry tale, and that started changing uh in the nineties. Um, but I consider other examples as well. Intelligence research still continuing that um we're still asking are women as intelligent as men? Are women as gifted in mathematics and the sciences as men, and so forth, and so an endless um uh differences gender related. Differences, race-related differences in intelligence, uh, still re- being researched. Message still. I mean, yeah, you know, lots of the, lots of the research is saying that women are fabulous. They're just as fine as men. Notice the way the questions are framed. Are they as good as men taken as a standard? Still there. No one ever says, all well, women better than men. Maybe we should have women as a standard. Women have to deal with all these obstacles in their careers in mathematics and the sciences and in other fields as well. Hey, you know, maybe they're more gifted. No one discusses. <laughs> are men as good as women? No way. Okay, So still there. So these problems still, you know, this is only very recently tackled problems and they're still there. Economics is a very sorry um, scene because uh, women are still not, that they have not done had the, the kinds of progress that have been, uh, experienced by medical research now, where there was legislation in the nineties mandating the inclusion of women, uh, in medical research, how women would be, uh, would be part of research groups and women's diseases would be, um, uh, researched just as much as men's diseases and so forth. So been, there has been successful uh, you know, changes in medical research and certainly in archaeology, not so much in intelligence research, although, you know, there are good things to be said and bad things to be said. Uh, but in economics, hardly changes at all. There's still, uh, neoclassical economics and number crunching and they're leaving out the roles of women. And so that's still a sorry story, but you know, so I give you know, these examples, a few others, and, um, just
1: the tip of the iceberg. Now, one of the really interesting things is that these questions regarding the social responsibility of science are very different from those that mainstream philosophy of science pursues. And usually, mainstream philosophy of science, as you as you mentioned here, looks at questions that isolate the realm of the epistemic from the other aspects of practice of science. Now, the uh, second chapter goes through this um, and, and really, I think, very wonderfully offers a kind of capsule history of the philosophy of science as a professional discipline in the service of looking at the roots of this attitude um, of sort of focusing on the epistemic among philosophers of science. Now, specifically, um, you uh, among many, many other wonderful examples here, you focus on um, the early 20th century work of the Vienna Circle as a precedent for doing a more socially engaged philosophy of science. Um, For listeners who may not yet have had a chance to read the book, can you talk about that a little bit? In what ways were the Vienna Circle socially and politically engaged, and why did the philosophy of science as a professional discipline move away from that approach? So what allowed that to emerge, and and what changed?
0: Well, the Vienna Circle was composed of lots of different types, but there was uh, sometimes called the left wing of the Vienna Circle. So this was the the beginnings of logical empiricism started there. And the left wing of the Vienna Circle included, for example, Philip Frank and, and uh, um, uh Hans Han and um and especially Neurath and others. And, and these people were very socially engaged. So were the others. I mean, in, in, they were socially engaged, like Carnap was socially engaged. They were many of them were socialists. Many of them were doing, uh, you know, engage in, in political activities outside of their academic pursuits. But someone like Carnap thought, but, uh, you know, a philosophy of science must be um, there, located in the, quote, as the, the manifesto of the, the group said, the icy slopes of logic. I mean, uh, philosophers of science were to deal with the logical reconstruction of science. Uh, Schlick thought that and, uh, very much too, and others, okay. But this left wing of the Vienna Circle felt that, um, that this was not the, the agenda that should be pursued in philosophy of science. Um, they were all very involved in unity of science project. Uh, but the left wing were involved in this because they felt, well, you know, unity of science meant, um, we could, uh, the resources of different sciences should be pooled for social reform. I mean, the whole Vienna Circle thought that if we get clearer about what is um, what is involved with scientific activity and very successful scientific activity, and we get clear about, therefore, what's involved with excellent reasoning, which didn't include metaphysics, so that's a whole big story, you know. Um, if we really wanted to rigorously reconstruct um, excellent reasoning processes using logic, et cetera, then um, this would help this would finally help society. You would get rid of the poor thinking, the old metaphysical stuff, the old stultifying philosophy from the past. We want a clean house. We want to get a philosophy which will be helpful to society. The the more conservative members felt, well, if we just get clear about the logic of science and get rid of the metaphysics and so forth, this will by itself be helpful because you'll have a better science will understand what science and the kinds of approaches that are truly valuable, and this has to help. Whereas someone like Neurath and thought, well, no, no, um, you need more unified understanding of scientific rationality. This was a unity of science movement. But Neurath and some others felt that no, but this um took on a deeper significance because um Science was very much affected by society, and um, science was um, – the decisions in science were, were really, if you looked at the situation, underdetermined by evidence always. That, you know, evidence because of the problem of induction, for example, how can we – from just a relatively few data, how can we induce a law, something very general, or a theory about – what's causing the regularity described by the law of theory, which talked about unobservables, how can we make these leaps? And Nurath said, look, they are leaps, and besides when we choose one theory rather than another, or one research problem rather than another, uh, the evidence isn't sufficient, can never be sufficient. Political issues, social issues, values have to be coming in. And um, if we... Start realizing that science is then infused in this way with values. We can now start making decisions about what should be the appropriate values, what should be an effective science which could really help the the social situation, the social problems that they were all though the, all the Vienna Circle were very much um, pained at and very much want to uh, respond to. So this was wow. This was not the whole Vienna Circle. It wasn't the all the roots of, um, you know, our philosophy of science developed in development, but it was an important, uh, set of people called the left wing, especially Neurath. So that's where they were. So what happened, um, when philosophy of science, you know, there was the war. Um, some of these people died, uh, in the war or, uh, in concentration camps or, they emigrated to different countries and then, you know, had untimely death like Nora. Um, but, uh, after the war, then, um, the situation was changed. Um, what was going on, for example, in the United States was, and ultimately the McCarthy time and, and, uh, worried about a socialist type agenda or, um, uh, uh a very socially and politically informed agenda for science and the whole, Pressure was for kind of a value-free science. If you're going to get the freedom to pursue science and philosophy of science, you better look very politically neutral. Certainly nothing that would, um, call attention, <laughs> adverse attention to yourself by, you know, the, the, um, the witchcraft uh, approaches of the, of the 50s. So, um, and now scholars have been looking into the history to figure out, you know, I mean, the, we are speculating, you know, what happened? There are various approaches, various causal factors that have been suggested. I mean, the McCarthy era was one, the change situation in the United States was one, the, the a professionalization of philosophy of science and how the professionalization of a field kind of changes it and makes it in, in many ways less political. That was another factor. There are doubtless other factors as well. Who died, who didn't, who got regular positions, like Philip Franck didn't, who did, and so forth. <clears throat> so um philosophy of science, you know, became very apolitical. And that maintained itself until really quite recently.
1: Thank you Now this what's um, you move from here from this really wonderful account of the really the history of the philosophy of science and its engagement or lack thereof um, with social issues to looking specifically at what um, feminist science studies can offer. So this chapter, and this is chapter three, looks at a number of approaches employed by feminist scholars of science studies to ask normative questions of science. Now there are some major questions that motivate this chapter, and these are questions that, um, I must be arising um, when thinking through these ideas in the minds of some listeners, and these are important questions. So, do social values belong in science at all? If so, which values belong? Where do they belong? At what point in the development of research, um, the evaluation of research, the teaching of science, etc., etc.? and what specific changes in science need to be made as a result? Now, after presenting us with these very important and very engaging questions, you take us through Um, three major approaches that have been used by feminist uh, science studies scholars to try to engage these questions and look in turn at the relative benefits and potential drawbacks or potential insufficiencies of each one. This is um, the methodological approach, which is uh, based on an idea of a value-free science, the social approach, um, which is rationalized by a social value management ideal of science, Um, and the naturalist approaches, which look at an empiricist ideal of science. Now, um, this is. There's a lot for listeners um, who haven't yet had a chance to read the book. There's a lot of really wonderful explication of each one of these positions in turn. And what you give us at the end is an argument for a new approach, based on a political approach, based on the idea of socially responsible science. So, can you speak a little bit to this approach that you're suggesting, this political approach to um, to a socially informed philosophy of science?
0: Sure. Uh, I'd love to. The, um, the other approaches, I mean, and, and this was this philosophical work that I'm now recounting. This, of course, was, um, the result of really looking at the kinds of issues that feminist scientists were engaged with and, and women in science who were not self-identified necessarily as feminists. It wasn't always, you know, um, self-consciously feminist scientists, but, Uh, so scientists and, but frequently they call themselves feminist scientists were finding various, um, examples of sexism in science. And we talked about that, for example, in medical research or androcentrism in science, that medical research was focused on men. Um, so they were in various fields. Women were finding that, well, the science wasn't, um, what they had Exp, were led to expect on the basis of their training. It wasn't, it wasn't disinterested. It wasn't, you know, objective. It was full of sexism and biases, androcentrism. Um, and the thought was that, uh, that, uh, you know, we really have to get the sexism and androcentrism out of science. One, because it would make for a better science. I mean, this was contaminated science. It was a biased science. And also, it was not objective science. I mean, and because of that, so uh, it w- and it was, you know, why? So it wasn't epistemically good, and it wasn't socially good because these were, to the extent that they self-identify as feminists, they wanted a better society. They wanted a society in which women women would be taken care of medically just as much as men. Um, and uh, women's story and women's contributions in history and, you know, in the various historical disciplines like archaeology would be uh women's contributions would be understood, acknowledged. And so that would be inspiring for young women and girls just starting out and finding their place in the world um, and seeking goals for themselves and so forth. So. The whole idea was to for these epistemic reasons, also social political reasons, to get this these biases this sexism androcentrism out of science um that was the ideal uh that was the goal, and it was thought initially that well, the ideal of value free science will justify this we of course you you want social values out of science. These were social values. They don't belong in science, only epistemic. to say knowledge-related considerations belong in science. And these were uh, social contaminants, political contaminants. And so that was one approach. Um, there were these other approaches that you mentioned. Uh, Longino, for example, Helen Longinot's very important and interesting uh, social approach. But ultimately, my argument suggests that well you know um if this is our goal to get sexism and androcentrism out of science for um the sake of political reform that we want a science not that supports sexism in society because the sexism is there in the science but that works to get rid of the sexism in society if you have this political goal as well as the epistemic goal of an objective science then um you cannot pursue these other approaches. I, and I argued that value-free science methodological approach didn't work. And, um, the social approach didn't work because you, in, although it had many, many attractive features, it just didn't ensure that we would be free of the problems in science, sexism, and androcentrism, and ditto for the naturalist approach. So, and I said, well, gee, um, well, now there's a kind of um much more, much uh, less sophisticated view that's staring us in the face here, a possibility right here. Um Why not, if you want these values in science, if you want to get rid of the sexism, well, then you have to grant that getting rid of sexism means infusing in science egalitarian values. If you want to get rid of racism in science, and I am always drawing analogies to race and science and so forth and other social problems, um, you you know, if you want to get rid of these biases, well, that there's no such thing as, oh, all right, then the science that's free of any values. No, getting rid of sexism means infusing egalitarian values into science and getting rid of racism is ditto, et cetera. And so, this was the ideal of socially responsible science that you want. Then, two kinds of considerations always to direct science: you want the epistemic considerations, and you want the social considerations. You want a science which includes um, the values which uh, relate to the, you know, the needs of society. And one of the primary needs of society is an egalitarian society. Um, another is a uh, sustainable. Society, so we want um, as I make clear later on in the book, when I broaden the whole program, uh, we want uh, sustainable uh, modes of uh, doing science and applying science, so we want uh, we have to attend to the environment we have to attend to the uh, the political situation globally, we have to attend to how science um, helps to Inform and perpetuate, um, a certain power imbalances in, in the world and so forth and what science can do to alleviate those problems. So, uh, we need to very, uh, self-consciously, and this goes back to the Neurot program. Values are there inevitably in science. We want the right values in science. So it's kind of like, well, duh, you know, why didn't anyone think of this since Neurot? Um, that's, decide to direct science equally with uh, social values as well as epistemic values. So that's the ideal of socially responsible
1: science. Now, in the, the remaining parts of the book, in the, the um, penultimate chapter here, um, you go through successively a series of five potential major challenges to this position. And um, one by one, talk about those challenges and demonstrate, I think, effectively how those challenges don't really pose um, a huge Problem and don't undermine this ideal of the socially responsible, um, socially engaged philosophy of science. These are an epistem- epistemological, historical, sociological, economic, and political challenge. Um, and these range from suggestions that, you know, that sort of are the kinds of questions that I think any reader seriously considering this would raise. And so it's very effective to, to have these in here and to, to show us how they're not actually huge. Um, Questions. I mean, for a historian of science in particular, um, it, it's particularly interesting to look at the historical challenge, which points to the consequences that have resulted from the interference of society in science. So Lysenkoism, Nazi Germany, but you also take us through other kinds of challenges. So challenges like the sociological that emphasize the kind of unique cognitive and social norms institutionally in a science uh, or institutionalized in science that ultimately are arguably, uh, according to some people, responsible for its advancement and so on and so forth. Now, ultimately, at the end of this, um, and after going through all of these challenges, you look ahead or you take us um, to a vision of what this might look like in the future and in the conclusion of the book and look at the conditions that might need to obtain in order to apply this very ambitious and very rich vision for a more socially engaged and informed philosophy of science to the practice of the philosophy of science. So I'll ask you to speak um, in, the, in the remaining time that we have a little bit to this, this last Part of the program. How would philosophers of science go about manifesting this approach first? And um, if, if you could speak a little bit to you as well, are there any particular philosophers of science working right now, or any particular works um, that you can point to that you found particularly inspiring in um, in manifesting this approach in uh, sort of enacting a more socially involved philosophy of science? Sure. Um- well,
0: I had uh, mentioned uh, so, so some of the approaches that I described or some of the projects that I described in the last chapter. Um, well, one certainly that I spend quite a bit of attention on is, um, uh, ethical codes in the sciences. And why this becomes very important for me is I end up with this, remember, this ideal of socially responsible science. This was the, my, um, suggestion as against the value-free ideal or the other ideals put forth by other thinkers. Um, I have my ideal of socially responsible science, which said, remember, um, you need ethical as well as or social as well as um, uh, epistemic values directing all of science from the very beginning, uh, you know, topics chosen, even titles of research papers and so forth to the end, the applications. Uh, So, um but how are you going to have this you know what does this mean concretely an ideal of socially responsible science um gee the sciences are so diverse and they you know they're dealing with very different terrains and so what might be helpful in one area might be completely irrelevant in another area what am i talking about i end up saying well uh, the codes that the scientists have been dealing with, have been working on, these codes, if done properly, which they have not done been done properly, if they were done properly, then this would be the piecemeal elaboration of the ideal of socially responsible science, at least the beginning of it, because you have different codes for different specialties. These specialties are very... Um, uh, they are, you know, ultimately global specialties. I mean, there's a lot of collaboration uh, among scientists in different, uh, different countries, uh, sometimes different, you know, specialties. And so, uh, it's very collaborative. It's very, um, it's not, it's international. And there have been, you know, uh, projects to get international codes to deal with the issues, the problems that have been arising in the sciences. Fraud is one problem, lack of um of the public uh, support and fear of science and distrust of scientists and so forth is another. There have been other reasons as well. So the codes have been thought to be very important. Philosophers of science have not been engaged in this, with very few exceptions, some have, but you know maybe two or three literally. Um, and this is a very important project that philosophers of science should be engaged with because this would be starting to flesh out the ideal of socially responsible science. It wouldn't be only philosophers of science working on this. I I spell out how it would be a very interdisciplinary uh, project. So this is one thing. So very few philosophers of science have been doing that. They should be working on this. This is very important. Um, uh, polarization of science, this was very prominent for the Bush administration. The discussion of this has died down, but still is an important issue now in, in the Obama administration in the U.S. Um, so, polarization of science, how the um, government should be intruding and how they ought to be um, manifesting their influence in science. It has to do with funding considerations. It has to do with advisory councils and how you populate them and so forth. Philosophers of science, by and large, have not been dealing with this at all. This is another project. Um, commercialization of science, another thing I mentioned. This is something which uh, is very important. A few philosophers of science have been dealing with this. Um, and, you know, what, but all kinds of other people have been dealing with this historians and sociologists political scientists and so forth is a very important set of issues. Philosophers of science, it has absolutely very powerful effects on the epistemic, the epistemics of science. Philosophers of science say, well, we don't care about social stuff. We only are concerned with the epistemic issues, the knowledge related issues. Well, of course, if um, commercial interests are directing science and biasing science in certain ways and causing um, secrecy, uh, putting obstacles in the way of the usual, um, uh, you know, goals of scientists to share information and help each other and collaborate and so forth. Well, my goodness, uh, then that becomes very important, even to very traditional philosophers of science. So, uh, so this is something else that I, I mentioned, some philosophers have gotten engaged, still others have not. Most others have not. They are still doing the kind of old style. We are dealing with science as if it's detached from society. If it's in a political vacuum, an economic vacuum, a social vacuum. And this is absolutely unsupportable. Now, who is, who are the good people? Well, um who are the really doing projects? And Philip Kitcher is is one who actually comes to me. I remember, feminists, of course, have been dealing with this. But feminists have been frequently dealing with it for gender issues, which is grand, and race issues. That's fantastic, but they haven't always branched out. And so people like John Dupre has said to me, well, why did you call it philosophy of science after feminism? You know, you should have said toward a um, socially responsible philosophy of science as the title, because that's really what you're talking about. But I want to. But, you know, we wanted to give credit to the feminists because they have really given us a model for how to do socially engaged philosophy of science. And this model is very important. It has been successful, uh, but we have to build on it. We have to branch out. We have to develop this model, and that's what the book is about. Um, and so we have to deal with uh, chemistry, and I talk about green chemistry, for example, and how we have to get the... Uh, the requirements of green chemistry into the chemist code of conduct and so forth. So we are, and who is doing this? So feminists have been doing wonderfully socially engaged, socially important, socially responsible philosophy of science, but not expansively. Philip Kitcher is doing, and he's, you know, almost the only one doing it across the board. He's doing a very general project, and so he's a pathbreaker. We don't always agree on all kinds of issues, but he is pursuing a socially responsible type philosophy of science, so he's a very important figure. Um, of course, the feminists, as I've said, Helen Lange and so forth, are doing important work, but not as expansively as Philip Kitcher these days. But Philip Kitcher has, you know, it's taken years for him to get there, and I think you interviewed Philip Kitcher yes. and
1: spelled that out. <laughs> yes, we had a great time talking about his recent book, and and it, it's a very um, it, the project is very much aligned with the project in um, in this book as well. You
0: know, my only, you know, um, upsetting uh, upsetting point with Philip Kitcher is, you know, he leaves everything very frequently on an abstract plane. Well, this is wonderful, I mean, he theorizes very interestingly, and and this is all very important. But the nice thing about the feminists is, that, you know, they always, as I said before, they always were concerned with the concrete situation, and Philip has also written stuff from the concrete situation, medical research worldwide, and what it leaves out, and what it privileges, and so forth. Uh, the Genome Project years ago, critiquing that, and so on, um, but in the, the project, when he really gets to the socially responsible philosophy of science, and he's focusing on that, then it tends to be abstract, um, and I want something you know, more concrete. And so, and that's where the model of feminist is very helpful, I think, for me. But he's a, he's a trailblazer.
1: Well, Jenna, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to talk with me today. It's, the book is very careful throughout to focus on the very specific case study of philosophy of science, but I think it has much broader applications for other fields that we might include under the rubric of science studies and even beyond. Um, it's, it's an extraordinarily rich book. And we, of course, didn't have time to talk about all of the fascinating things in the book. Is there anything in particular that we didn't cover, that, but that you'd like to point out for listeners, especially those who may not yet have had the chance to read the book? oh
0: gee um well one thing just touching on this last um and it's not in the book but it's it's things that i'm working on now because i you know in the book i wanted to uh uh help create a philosophy of science which is socially embedded okay that deals with um the situation of science in society. And when you look at the scene in society, of course, I looked at sexism and and a little bit racism and um, a little bit, you know, environmental issues and so forth in in society in the book. But what I'm moving toward now is, you know, uh, other issues. Um, uh, uh, Robert Proctor has coined this new term, agnotology, the, the study of ignorance. And when you look at society, and this is something Philip and Kitcher is also very much engaged in, when you look at society, well, um, there's a lot of ignorance. If you look at American society, for example, American society with all the libraries and the books and the articles and the internet and all this, these resources that are easily available to people. Wow. The, the, the you know, in the school system and public education, um, the ignorance is shocking. Uh, about very basic things, not only as Philip will emphasize, like climate science uh, and global warming, but about things like nutrition and uh, we have obesity, unbelievable obesity epidemic and uh, everything that follows from that, for example, uh, you know, the various diseases and cancer and heart disease and um, uh, you know, uh, diabetes and so forth. So, you know, and what what, um, how does science, how does science relate to all this? And we find that a lot of science, and this is links up to the commercialization I referred to before. A lot of science is engaged with making these problems worse. So it was kind of analogous to the sexism and so forth. Wow. You have a lot of science that has been done. I mean, Proctor has talked about the tobacco industry and how that has the tobacco industry did lots of science to, um, to Def- deflect our attention away from the cancer-causing um, uh, elements of smoking uh, into, oh, maybe the causes are elsewhere. Maybe we should look at, um, you know, predisposition genetically. Maybe it has nothing to do with smoking. And all kinds of ways, throwing in red herrings and doing research to just bias the, the understanding of the problems of smoking in the public for the public so um i'm very concerned about these kinds of issues i'm very concerned about i mean so he has discussed that but something that has not really been discussed by historians or you know historians like proctor or philosophers certainly is on uh, nutrition and um how why do we have this obesity problem why do we have all the problems which relate to that and it's a uh, the food industry, the restaurant industry, there's lots of science engaged with, I mean, essentially in some ways, making us addicted to, making us overeat, making us addicted to salt, making us addicted to sugar. Uh, some scientists have now disclosed changes in the brain, which occur not only because of smoking, but because of certain foods that are eaten. How sugar changes, how creates a need for sugar, etc., cetera, uh, an addictive need. So this is science is now being used to create or to perpetuate problems in society. We have to look into this. So I'm very interested these days in, so I haven't touched on these kinds of issues in the book, but in agnetology, my new project is, um, and I call it forbidden knowledge. Um, the ways in which science is producing ignorance and how science has to be changed. So it, it is just part of the fleshing out of the ideal of socially responsible science. Okay.
1: So. That's wonderful. Thank thank you so much. It sounds like a great next project too. And when that's in book form, then let me know. We'll talk about that as well. Oh <laughs> Janet, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure and thanks so much for making the time. It's a wonderful book and I hope it gets a wide continues actually to have a wide readership among scholars of science studies in philosophy of science and beyond.
0: Thank you so much. I hope so too. (laughs) Thank you for all the help you've given toward that goal.
1: You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you next time.